I have murdered more people than Ted Bundy. Throughout history, whenever great injustices existed, youth movements have risen up to combat and end those injustices. You have organizations out there like the Center for Bioethical Reform. The Center for Bioethical Reform. Canadian Center for Bioethical Reform. Organizations like the Center for Bioethical Reform to receive public funds when they then use to attack a woman's right to choose. Abortion kills all kinds of people, so then all kinds of people can join the pro-life movement to save these babies. I was talking to a young man on the streets of Toronto. I spoke with a woman named Lucy about abortion. Today we were doing choice chain in downtown Regina. By the end of the conversation, she was completely pro-life. He then walked away 100% pro-life. Completely pro-life. We should remember that each of those babies that die every day in Canada not only have the right to life that's being violated, they also have the right to artifacts. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Pro-Life Guys podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in once again. That opening quote probably startled you, and for good reason. I have murdered more people than Ted Bundy. That is a quote from our guest today, Dr. Kathy Altman, who is a former abortion provider, uh, no longer is anymore, currently working in the pro-life movement, speaking out against the abortion industry and against abortion itself. And uh, we will be having a conversation with her today. But before we get into that, my name is Peter. I am the host of the show, and I am joined once again by my wonderful co-host, Cameron Cote. Hello, sir. How are you? I am doing very well, Peter. We're back doing activism in Calgary, which is a wonderful, wonderful thing. It is getting cold, but we're out um, this past weekend, and I think... um, all four of the volunteers having conversations were, were in conversation for almost the entire time. We've got five or six testimonies um, that'll be going up on social media soon. So I'm doing well. I'm glad to be back doing pro-life outreach. And I'm glad to be back in the studio with you for this um, episode with Dr. Altman. Yeah, likewise. Um, for those of you who are unaware of who we are, or maybe this is your first time listening to the podcast, we are two guys who are passionate about ending the killing of preborn children in Canada. And this podcast, we started it to give you the tools that you need to change minds and save lives from abortion. We spend time on the streets, as Cam mentioned, and we want to equip you to spend time having conversations with others about abortion as well. And not just any conversation. We want you to have winsome conversations and effective conversations, conversations where you can actually see people change their minds. And one of the goals in the podcast is to meet people who have uh, experience and expertise that we don't have to learn from them. And that's what we're doing today with a conversation with Dr. Kathy Altman. Dr. Altman is currently an associate scholar with the Charlotte Logier Institute and a member of the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists, the Christian Medical and Dental Associations, the Florida Medical Association, and is a life fellow of the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. She retired from medicine after working as a board-certified OBGYN from 1981 to 2014. Early in her career, Dr. Altman served as the medical director for Plant Parenthood of Jacksonville, Florida. Her experiences performing abortions eventually led her to become a staunch defender of of life in the womb, and that's something we'll be talking about today. She has testified extensively 
on a variety of pro-life issues before state and congressional bodies and in state courts and was featured. Uh, she was a featured speaker at the 2019 March for Life rally in Washington, D.C. Before we get into the conversation, I just want to share this is a tough conversation. It's a hard conversation on a hard topic. She's going to be sharing her experiences and she is going to be sharing the abortion procedures themselves, the the way that preborn children lose their lives uh, at the hands of abortionists. So I want you to to know that as we go into this conversation, it's going to be difficult, it's going to be challenging, and yet as difficult and challenging as it will be, it is extremely important for us to know what these abortion procedures are when we're in conversations with people, know how to respond to them, know what's actually going on, and it's important to hear the testimony of someone who was on the other end uh, who performed abortions for some time. So, uh, with all that, uh, we start the conversation with Dr. Kathy Altman. We hope you enjoy it. Dr. Altman, thank you so much for taking the time and joining us on the Pro-Life Guys podcast. Hey, this is really exciting uh, being able to do this. Yeah, we, we're really excited to have you on. We've looked forward to this for a while. Now, to, to kick things off, to start things off, could you give us a little background on how you ended up in the medical field? Oh, boy. <laughs> When a big I question was, there. Uh, Holy probably in grammar school. <laughs> when I was when I was in grammar school, I went fishing with my dad, and I wanted to clean the fish because I wanted to see their insides, and uh, <laughs> and so I he had a great he had a great deal. I always cleaned his fish for him, and uh, <laughs> one time my mother brought home a heart, and I cut it open so I could see the valves working and. And then my, uh, I visited my aunt, who was the first female bioengineer, and I was so excited being in her lab, I just decided I wanted to be a scientist. Very cool. I, I, I think of my own journey. I, so I've got a background in developmental biology, the number of different organisms I've dissected. I, I can definitely appreciate that fascination with how living organisms kind of fit together, how, how they work, that kind of thing. And, and I find that so, so interesting. And so as you were kind of going through your... Um, secondary school, getting closer to medical school. Did you have a particular direction? You mentioned research. Was this something that um, you had a, a very definitive path that you were looking to pursue? Or, or as you got closer to medical school, how did you start deciding what specialties or, or focuses you wanted to pursue, I guess? Well, um, after spending, I spent a couple of summers with my aunt and uh, the first summer, I just did basic research with her. And this was um, when I was in college. And then the second summer, she put me in a program at Roswell Park, which is a cancer, cancer institute. And it was for people interested in medical school. And I realized that I liked interacting with people. And I decided that I wanted to help people. And that's why I decided I wanted to go into medicine. Now, also at that time, there were a lot of PhDs out of work. I originally wanted to be a marine biologist, but I wanted to be able to take care of myself because I had no safety net and I wanted to know that I would be okay. And so I decided I'd apply to medical school first. And if I got in, I'd do that. I'd apply to graduate school second, just in case. <laughs> 
Safe bet there, safe bet there. I think of uh, when I was doing my my directed studies and and some of the the extra research I did during my um, post secondary degree. Many of the people working in the laboratories had similar situations where they had initially hoped to be tracking wolverines through the Canadian Rockies and whatnot, and realized that there there really aren't that many jobs for that in Canada, um, and so they they needed to to have a, a fallback plan, as it were, and and yeah, see see what opportunities really opened up for them, I guess. And so you're, you're a bright-eyed student jumping into medical school, that sort of thing. Can you share with us a little bit about the journey from there towards, um, I, I suppose, becoming an abortion provider? Um, what was that journey like going from this, this was one of two options and then kind of getting closer and closer towards working in an abortion facility, performing abortions, I guess? Yeah. Well, it goes back to um, the summer before I went to medical school. I was already accepted. I um, met my future husband, and before we married, we had sex. And the very first time we had sex, I got pregnant. And I was afraid that, one, everybody think would think I was terrible. I was afraid if I kept the baby... Uh, we would end up getting divorced because that's what happens if, you, if you're forced to get married because you have a baby. And then I was afraid that I wouldn't be able to go to medical school and realize my dream. So I had an abortion. And I think that colored my, um, my views after that. And so I, when I went to um, medical school, I bought into the whole pro-choice thing. Mm -hmm. And then I did a, um, I did a, uh, rotation in OBGYN and decided I really liked OBGYN. And while I was there, I saw some 12 year olds giving birth and I decided, oh my gosh, you know, nobody should have to go through that at 12, you know? So, and I became very, uh, pro-abortion, um, not just pro-choice, pro-abortion. And I decided that that was a way that I could help women. Most people don't realize that every OBGYN in their training, unless they opt out for conscience, has to learn how to do abortions. Mm -hmm. And there, there were some guys in my program who did opt out, but I didn't. I thought it was a good thing. So I didn't, I didn't even consider opting out. Now, 85% of OBs do not do abortions, but almost all of them did during their training. Um, mm. And most people don't realize that. Um, I not only um, learned how to do first trimester abortions, but there was a, an attend, a man who was an attending with our, with our um, residency program, and he did late-term abortions. And I, and as a matter of fact, it just so happened, he was the same guy who had done my abortion. So I, I knew him. Um, and I went and I asked him, could I uh, do a preceptorship with him and learn how to do D&E or dismemberment abortions? And he agreed and I did them. And ha have you seen the movie Unplanned? Yes. Okay. Yep. You know how... Um, how the heroine um, 
okay, remind me of her name. It's Abby. Uh, Abby, Abby Johnson. Abby. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Do you remember how when Abby was told to go in and help in the cleanup room to count the body parts and her reaction was almost the same as mine. We weren't horrified by what we saw. We were intrigued. We were fascinated by how beautiful the little bodies were and the little fingers and toes and the organs. And we just thought it was really cool. And I guess that's not the normal response, but it was our response. And so I would, uh, we uh, were doing our pathology rotation at the same time. And we would, I would cut up specific parts that I wanted to see what the t the fetal tissue, the histology looked like and send them on down and was really excited to look under the microscope. I just did not make that connection that this is a human being I'm doing this to. I, I, I knew it was human, but, but I, somehow there was a disconnect. So um, during, during residency, most of the residents have to moonlight to make extra money because you don't make much money there. And I could either work in an ER or I could work do doing abortions. Well, in the emergency room, I'd be seeing all kinds of different patients and I wouldn't really know what I was doing. And I could make more money at the abortion clinic and do what I knew how to do. And do what I felt was helping, you know, helping women. So I decided to uh, go to the abortion clinic and do abortions. Not only, <laughs> now I even did abortions when I was pregnant. I got pregnant during the last year of my residency program. And I even did abortions then. And I thought it was, it made total sense. There, my baby was wanted. So I was pregnant and I was keeping it. And their babies were not wanted. And so it was okay for me to kill their babies. I still saw no contra contradiction there. You know, the only time that I, I did have some qualms about what I was doing was when I was on my neonatal intensive care unit rotation. And I realized that I was taking care of babies and trying to save babies in the, in the unit that we were aborting, you know, mm. in, with the dismemberment abortions, late dismemberment abortions. But I kind of tucked it away. You know, in medicine, you're taught to really compartmentalize things. And I, th I think that's the way that we can do things that hurt people, knowing that it will help them. But, um, just to be able to justify that in our minds, we have to compartmentalize and it works real, works real well. So I continued to do abortions while I was pregnant. And it was only after I delivered and went back to the clinic. That was when everything changed. Mm -hmm. Wow. There's a, there's a lot there. And I'd, I'd love to talk about um, what it was that changed after you went back, but if I could, if I could jump back a little bit, you mentioned that your own abortion story was a significant factor uh, in changing how you thought about abortion. What was, uh, what, what did you know? Th those around you, your family, your friends, what did they think about your decision to um, pursue an abortion providing career? Um, were they supportive? Were they not supportive? 
Um, and, and I asked that because from a, a little bit that we that we did research um, into your story and some of the other conversations that you've had with others, you have a Christian background. Your father was a minister. Um, so what kind of response did you get from those around you when they learned that you were going to be providing abortions? Um, I don't I never told them. <laughs> okay. I didn't tell them about my own abortion. I I didn't talk to my family about you know, what I was doing in my training, I don't know that it ever came up. Um, now, now I have to say my mother is one of the original women's livers and she and I disagree, disagree. <laughs> we mm. sort of, um, agree not to talk about it because she's very much in favor of abortion. So, um, gotcha. but I, I wish at the time when I got pregnant and was considering my own abortion, I wish that I had talked to my mother because I would have found out that she would have been supportive. My family would have been supported. My friends, they would have supported me. All, the three reasons why I, why I chose to have the abortion ended up not being valid. I ended up divorced from my husband anyway. Um, I met in medical school women who had had their children first and then went to medical school. So I, it wasn't like I couldn't have gone on to medical school. And um, so all three reasons were invalid. And was that the reason you didn't share it with them? Because you, you weren't sure what your family was going to think? Is that why you decided not to tell anyone? I was embarrassed. Well, okay. I didn't share about my abortion because I was embarrassed and I was afraid of what they would think. Yeah. Exactly. And I think that's true for many, many women. Um, as far as later when I was doing abortions, it just never really came up. Mm -hmm. um, Dr. Altman, thank you so much for, for being willing to share this experience. I can only imagine what it's like to, um, in some ways, relive this experience. If I could ask a little bit about um, kind of getting involved. I, you mentioned this heart for the pregnant mothers who are coming in, seeing these 12 year old girls, very young, I'm sure very, very hard circumstances that they're faced with. And this is a theme that we've heard from, um, people who are still performing abortions. I think of, um, a couple of my colleagues have debated Dr. Fraser Fellows, um, who performs abortions in Canada. I think even of the, the testimony of Dr. Henry Morgenthaler in Canada, who was in many ways a pioneer and, and, a uh, recurring theme has been that heart for these pregnant mothers coming in in all sorts of different circumstances and whatnot. And I wonder, um, as as somebody who was involved in the, the abortion industry, as it were, as a doctor, were you talking to these women and, and learning about what kind of circumstances was, were pushing them towards their abortion decisions. And, and this was a way for you to understand where they were coming from and then help them, I suppose, with abortion, or maybe just unpack a little bit the, the circumstances that some of these abortion minded women were coming in with and how that may have impacted your, your decision to continue performing abortions. You mentioned that you were performing both early term and late term abortions and that this was more a, a matter of wantedness or, or circumstances surrounding rather than a particular level of development. Is that fair to say that looking at the circumstances that many mothers were coming into the clinic with, you, you were seeking to help them, I suppose, is, is kind of what you were meaning? Okay. So I assumed, okay, 
I wanted to do something good because I assumed that that was the best thing. But I have to tell you that when I was actually doing abortions, I don't think I ever did an abortion for a fetal anomaly or um, because of some tragic circumstance, except for one. And I do want to get back to why I stopped doing the abortions. Um, there was one case there that was a hard case. But um, when when I was doing a when I was actually doing the abortions, it was just mostly I would do their you know be questioning them prior to the abortion because they at back then they had to have a reason, and most of them did not have a reason other than they didn't want to be pregnant, and so I would have to say, well, won't this bother you psychologically? You know, if you have this baby, oh yeah, okay, psychological reason. Mm. Um, I don't think I had any that that really um, were really hard, tough stories other than they, they didn't want to be pregnant. Now, the population um, where I was working was uh, a college town, university town. And so these were mostly well-educated young women. Mm. But basically it was they didn't want to be pregnant. After being in practice for over 30 years, what I found in my practice was that um, I, I think we hurt women more than we help them with abortion. I, I believe that whole line that pregnancy was the worst thing that could happen to a, you know, an unplanned pregnancy was the worst thing that could happen to a young woman. And, and that's just not the case. It, you know, it's really a small portion of time out of their life. They can always adopt, adopt the baby out. Now that's gotten a bad rap. Women think, oh, I don't want to give my baby away. I won't know what happens to my baby. So it's better to kill them. Is that better? Mm -hmm. Really? You know, we need to re-educate people on adoption. And, and I guess they have something called open adoption now where you can um, have some interaction with the family that ad adopts your child and even maybe choose the family. Um, you know, that kind of stuff is great. So we need to make, um, a, a, we need to make adoption a better, you know, more viable and, and better thought of option. Mm -hmm. But I don't think any woman, and what I found in my practice, women cannot kill their child and remain unscathed at some time, some point it comes back and bites them. And there's so, so many women who um, I saw that were uh, depressed after their abortions. I had one woman who came in who I think at seven or eight weeks, she found out she was pregnant. She said that she had a knee-jerk reaction. Um, this is not good timing. She went and got an abortion. Afterwards, she was devastated, became suicidal, and had to see a therapist because she, she what she said was the realization that she had killed her child was far worse than the um, trauma she felt of being uh, having an unwanted pregnancy. I had another woman who was deeply scarred. Uh, this was a woman who had an abortion at 20 weeks. And it was an induction abortion where they give medication to make the uterus contract and they go into labor. And um, she was finally, after 
having cramps all night, she was finally told to sit on the toilet and push the next morning. And she delivered a little baby boy into the toilet. And she um, subsequently had terrible psychological problems because she related to me that her uh, brother had down had had drowned a little baby brother. I'm sorry. She related to me that her baby brother had drowned as a, a, a little baby or a toddler, I guess. And here she had drowned her little baby. Um, she had come to me because she had continued bleeding uh, for, I think it had been six months after the abortion. And I was trying to help her with that. But in the process, she related the story. So I guess what I saw in my practice was... Were, which I, what I saw in my practice and, and the thing that went against what I had believed was that I saw young women who um, kept their unplanned pregnancy, kept the, this unplanned baby and did really, really well. And other women who had abortions who were really struggling um, emotionally, had physical complications. And so abortion is not the right knee-jerk reaction, you know. We, we've really been sold a bill of goods that women can't, um, you know, they can't meet their dreams and their goals unless they kill their children if they get pregnant. And, and that's so sick. And it's mm-hmm. not what I saw in my practice. Yeah, it, it is it is quite something. And we hear it all the time. Cam and I have been in the movement for some time. And that's that's one of the things we often hear that, you know, for women's empowerment to actually be a thing, for women to be empowered in our society, abortion access is something that they must have. Uh, they must have this right to end the life of their young human being. And at the same time, we often hear stories of of people who kept their child during school and, and their, you know, uh, they were they were single, and we we highlight them for the fact that they were successful as a single parent and and um, as as someone who kept their child and was able to go against all odds, as it were, and and still thrive. Uh, and there's this there's this there's this di- dichotomy there that I find. Um, before we get into how you uh, started to to leave the abortion practice, some of the changes that happened in your mind. Uh, and some of the questions that you started to have, we'd like to to touch a little bit on the abortion procedures themselves. And the reason we want to do that is because as pro-lifers, we know that abortion is wrong. We're, we're against abortion. We speak out against it. But in my experience, many pro-lifers don't actually know what abortion is, the, the individual, the, the specific types of procedures that are available to women. So from your experience, could you share with us some of the different types of abortions that people can get at different stages of pregnancy and just outline them for us uh, share you know what takes place during those procedures what is required on on the end of the abortion provider and um, yeah well, just what each different abortion procedure looks like okay so in the first trimester uh, the first first third of pregnancy Normally, the procedure that's the surgical procedure that's done is called an aspiration or DNC with suction, suction abortion. And in that case, um, the woman is given some local anesthetic in her cervix, and a, a plastic tube 
is inserted into the uterus and it's attached to suction and the abortionist suctions out everything in the uterus. And the further along the pregnancy, the more the abortionist can actually see. You, you can tell as the fluid comes through and then when the baby comes through and then when the placenta comes through um, because of the different, you know, you can see what's in the tube. Um, this, as the baby is pulled through the hole in the tip of the suction, the baby's is bigger than the, the hole, um, but it's soft. And so it, it gets basically macerated as it's going through the tube. Now, you still can see the little body parts and the abortionist has to go through those parts and basically put the baby back together after, after a certain gestation, once, once the fetus is big enough to see. Um, you have to put those little parts back together to make sure nothing was left inside the uterus to cause infection. Um, I actually, I actually think that's why um, most OBGYNs don't do abortions. You can't paw through baby body parts for very long and not have it affect you, not have it, not, and not have it affect the normal person. So the um the procedure the other procedure that i learned um is done in the second trimester and that's called a d and e or dilation and evacuation or dismemberment abortion is the lay term often used in that procedure we also use a suction cannula to pull out the fluid it also will pull the baby down lower into the uterus um Prior to that procedure, um, depending on how far along the pregnancy is, we normally have to dilate the cervix, and this takes either one or two days, and we insert pieces of seaweed or other uh, types of dilators that expand with fluid, and so it opens the cervix big enough that we can get in with our instruments and, and dismember the baby. So one to two days of enlarging the cervix woman comes in we pull those out um, oftentimes um, for these abortions people get general anesthesia <clears throat> but sometimes not um, just the cervical um, local or we call it a paracervical block um, i want to say by the way that abortions are painful uh, and I used to work so hard to try to make them as painless as I could for the patient. I never even thought about the pain the baby might be having, which is crazy. But anyway, going back to dismemberment abortions. Um, once the laminaria are out and we've suctioned the fluid, we reach in with some real heavy-duty clamps and we just grab whatever we can. And if you... Um, pull and kind of twist, you can twist off that body part because the rest of the body is stopped by the cervix. Um, and then you just keep doing that until you've got all the arms and legs, and then you have to try to reach in and, and you have to open the clamps bigger so you can try to grab the head. We try to grab the head first um, because it's difficult if you just have this little sphere in there running around. It's harder to get that later. So try to get the head first. You crush it. You can tell when you've gotten it because this white stuff 
oozes out, which is actually the brains. Then you try to go in and crush the thorax and pull that out. Then um, you try to grab the placenta, pull the placenta out. And then I always put the uh, suction cannula back in to um, see if there was anything, um, anything else in there. And then I would take a, um, a, a large metal curette um, and just carefully just feel the sides of the uterus to see if there was anything else in there. And then you do have to go and put the baby back together before you let the woman get up and make sure all the all the body parts are, are there. And as the um, as the baby matures, um, you start to get some calcification. So it's important that you don't leave bits of skull um, inside the uterus. As a matter of fact, I had a woman come to me after an abortion with bleeding. And when I did a hysteroscopy to try to find out why she was having bleeding, I found pieces of skull bone still in her uterus, which I removed. Um, so then we would, you know, if everything, we have all the pieces, then we let the woman get up. So as the, as the pregnancy progresses and more calcification occurs in the bones, um, it becomes more dangerous to try and do a dismemberment abortion. And this is when the intact DNX, well, this is when the intact DNA was developed, otherwise known as DNX, otherwise known as partial birth abortion. And in that case, they really overdilated the cervix and would, and I never did one of these, um, then they would try to manipulate the baby into a position where it was feet first, and then they would pull down on the feet and deliver the baby as far as the head, and the head would be too big to come out. So then they would insert a scissors in the back of the neck uh, at the base of the skull, open the scissors, and um, the brains would come out, the head would decompress, and then they would be able to completely deliver the baby. In China, they do something similar. If the baby is head first, um, they would just puncture the fontanelle, suck out the brains, and then deliver the baby. Um, another procedure that can be done later in pregnancy um, is called an induction abortion. And that's where um, it's, it's like it sounds, you induce labor, and just deliver the baby. Now, in these cases, if you don't give something to kill the baby ahead of time, you will have a live baby. And I actually have a cousin who survived an, an induction abortion. Um, she's Canadian. Wow. <laughs> there are, you know, there are actually quite a few people who have survived abortions, all kinds of abortions, D&Es, D&C with suction, induction abortions, even one guy who said he, he survived a partial birth abortion. So um, then there's one other, one other type. Well, there are some older types that aren't done anymore, like prostaglandin abortions and saline abortions or urea abortions. Those pretty much aren't done. Uh, they even used to do a hysterotomy, which is almost like a C-section. They'd make an incision in the uterus, pull the baby out, and um, I'm not, I guess they just cut the cord and let the baby die, you know, bleed to death. That's pretty much not done. Um, 
but one thing that is commonly done that's available now is the um, abortion pill abortion. And um, more and more abortions are being done that way. And basically what happens is you take medication that causes a miscarriage. I remember being sort of horrified when I heard about RU486 and that people were going to be taking this medication and it was going to be causing miscarriages because as a as an OBGYN, miscarriages was one of my emergencies. One of the things, you know, I put the, the, the pedal to the metal and, you know, just went all out trying to get to the hospital because these women would sometimes bleed to death. And I think it's crazy that we're creating all of these miscarriages, uh, creating the kind of pain and misery and uh, complications that you get from these abortions. Um, they are more dangerous than surgical abortions. And the, um, the way it was depicted on the movie Unplanned is not an exaggeration of what women go through. They're very traumatic. Mm-hmm. And again, Dr. Altman, thank you very, very much for being willing to share this with us. I, it breaks my heart even just to hear about these procedures, knowing that there are children each day in Canada and America and around the world who are suffering death in, in this particular way. And I, Peter and I can definitely relate to when we're doing our pro-life outreach um, and we're showing abortion victims, um, photographs of abortion victims, and, and often we're met with this incredulity of there's no way that it could look like that. There's no way that we would allow a, a procedure that would look like that. And and we often, whether whether we share a, a testimony from yourself or somebody like Dr. Anthony Leventino, and, and just show, no, th this is exactly how abortion providers describe it. I know there's even abortion facilities that will have a, a not as accurate description of these procedures, but some kind of a description of them. This is something that you have, have testified to in court, um, speaking with politicians and speaking within the greater movement. And I'm, I'm curious what the response has been when you, as somebody who has personally performed the suction abortion and the D&E abortions, when you share the, the reality of how these abortions are performed um, upon these tiny human beings, what has the response been um, that, that you've witnessed, whether it's from politicians or from courthouses or even just from the general public in the beautiful pro-life ministry that you're doing now to save lives? What has the response been when somebody with your expertise can clearly and succinctly describe these procedures as you have here? Well, I, I have to say in the political arena, mm -hmm. I don't know how much difference it makes. They pretty much have already made up their opinion before they come in. I don't think they hear me. Mm -hmm. um, and same thing for the people, you know, from pro-abortion pro people on the other side. Now, I, I'm always glad when I see a whole bunch of young girls in pink shirts come in um, because I keep hoping that maybe something I'm saying will get through to them, but I don't know that it does. Mm -hmm. This whole issue blinds people so completely. It blinded me. I didn't see it. I, I really didn't. Mm -hmm. God had to open my eyes. <laughs> um, so in the political arena... I don't know that it changes. I gave a talk at church and it was amazing how many people came up to me afterwards and said, and then these are Christians, I was 
I was pro-choice, but after listening to your testimony, I've changed my mind. You said it differently. And um, I think it all depends on, on how set people are in their ways. If they're really set in their ways, it doesn't make a lot of difference. Although when I talk to my friends that created Equal, it does seem to change people's opinion once they really see it in black. I mean, not not black and white in full color. When yeah. they see it, it does seem to change their mind because most people have no idea. You know, we tend to shut out things that we don't like and don't want to know about. And most people do that with abortion. They, um, they like the idea that they want to be pro-woman. They want to help women. They just don't want to know what really happens in order to make that occur. Mm-hmm. And, and Peter, I'm sure that, that one thing that you've seen while doing um, activism with abortion victim photography, I often, people have such a hard time embracing and accepting the abortion victim images. And, and that's why at many of our displays, we have ultrasound images as, as well to kind of juxtapose abortion with the naturally developing human beings. And and people will will embrace wholeheartedly. Oh, yeah, that's absolutely what I expect a an eight week old or an eight month old um, child to look like inside the womb um, via ultrasound imagery. And so, what I'll often do is simply, I, I don't convey it anywhere near as eloquently or descriptively as you do, Doctor Altman, but kind of describe the abortion procedures and say, okay, if if you agree that that's what uh, a child would look like before an abortion. When you understand what these procedures do, what do you think they would look like afterwards? And isn't that very similar to what these abortion victims um, look like in these photographs? We're going to have um, Greg Cunningham on in one of our upcoming episodes talking about kind of the, the legal side of abortion victim photography and and that sort of thing. But I'm I'm curious, Peter, if, if you've had a similar experience. I, I just think of that trying to get people to think of what would an abortion victim look like? after an abortion. Um, and, and with that, I wonder what the, the conversations you say that, that many, many OBGYNs don't perform abortions. I've heard, um, statistics through the years that very few people end up performing abortions for a long period of time. Many people end up walking away from performing abortions after several years. Um, and I, I wonder if that's something that you witnessed while working in the abortion industry. Obviously, yourself, praise God, are, are no longer performing abortions. I, I wonder if that's a theme that you saw, Dr. Altman, while working in um, the abortion industry, seeing people walk away for various reasons after having been part of it. Well, I wasn't inside for very long. I basically mm. was doing it during my you know, residency program. What I didn't know was one of my um, fellow residents who later ended up, I ended up being partners with, um, I didn't realize that he had also stopped during our residency program. He basically said God told him it was evil. Mm. (laughs) Um, I think what what happens to most people is I think they stop after their residency program or shortly into their practice because here they are, they're delivering babies, you know, they've got all these pregnant moms in the office, and it's pretty hard to justify taking care of all these moms and their babies, and then in the other room, doing abortions. There's just too much of a contradiction, and 
also there are a lot of pregnant women who do not want to be going to somebody who does abortions and they can lose patients. Mm -hmm. I will tell you that um, it made a difference to me when I still believed in abortion. I wasn't doing them myself, but I still believed in abortion. It made a difference to me when my patient asked me, do you believe in abortion? And when I said, yes, she said, well, I'm going to have to find someone else to see for my pregnancy. Um, I had seen her for several years since she was a kid um, for GYN. And that really um, spoke to me when she, when she said that it made me think about it and was one of the things in my transition away from doing abortion. So you may make a difference if you, you know, if a woman stands her ground and says, Hey, you know, if you're doing abortions, I'm sorry, I can't see you. I, because I feel so strongly about this. And it, it, if that person has enough people say that it might make a difference in them walking away. So Dr. Altman, you mentioned a little earlier that you weren't just pro-choice, you were pro-abortion, you were performing abortions, you thought this was what uh, you needed to do to help women. But then you you also mentioned that God brought you out of this um, and, and turned your mind from being pro-abortion. Could you share with us how this happened? How did you go from performing abortions to recognizing the, the injustice of the abortion procedure itself? So I continued doing abortions while I was pregnant because I felt like my baby was wanted, theirs wasn't, and so it was okay. But after my baby was delivered, I went back to do abortions at about six weeks postpartum. And I think something had already happened in my mind because of my own delivery, but there were three patients I saw that day that um, changed my mind. The first young girl, I realized looking at her chart, I had done three previous abortions on her myself and I hadn't been doing abortions that long. And I went to the clinic manager and I said, I don't want to do this. I've already done three on her. She's using this as birth control. And she said, you don't have that right. She has the right to um, have abortion and you have to do it. So dummy does it. And sure enough, I tried to talk to her about contraception and she had absolutely no interest. She liked using abortion as her contraceptive method. The second patient came in with a friend and sometimes people would ask me to see the tissue after the abortion, not very often, but occasionally they did and I would show them. And after I did the abortion, her friend said to her, do you want to see the tissue? And she said, no. I just want to kill it. And I thought, what did this baby ever do to you? You know, it wasn't the baby's fault. And it, it just, her reaction horrified me. Her hostility horrified me. And then the third patient, I think was my last patient. And she um, already had three or four kids at home. I think she had four kids. Maybe this was her fourth pregnancy. Um, she and her husband felt they couldn't afford to have another baby, and so they had decided she should have an abortion while well, she cried the entire time she was in the clinic. And after that, the fact that the baby was unwanted 
was not enough of a reason for me to have to kill it. And that's when I stopped physically doing abortions. Now, it wasn't until a couple of years later that my mind was completely changed. Part of, the, um, part of it was, um, you know, seeing women in my practice with unplanned pregnancies that, that kept them, you know, young girls kept them, did great. These other women who were having psychological and physical complications after abortion. So that, um, that got rid of this, you know, whole idea that, well, abortion is the best thing. Um, at my church, um, I saw a couple of young women uh, keep their babies. Uh, one of them actually was a Down syndrome baby. And as I watched them grow up, I thought, oh my goodness, these children wouldn't be here. These precious little kids that I ended up teaching in class, they wouldn't be here if their mothers had made the other, you know, the other choice. So that, that, that was a biggie. The final thing was, um, now I still believed in abortion even after I became a Christian. I was raised as a preacher's kid, but when, in college I became an atheist. Finally, God, God got me by the scruff of the neck and found me and brought me back. And I became a Christian, but I still believed that a woman has the right to have an abortion. It wasn't until I became involved in a singles ministry and a friend there um, finally got up the courage to say, Kathy, I know you feel strongly about abortion, but would you read this article? And I said, okay, because it was someone I trusted. And it was, an it was an article that compared abortion to the Holocaust. Now I can't talk about this when I testify because it's, it's politically incorrect. But I can't help if it's my story. Yeah. So my dad was uh, with the unit that opened the first concentration camp in, well, liberated the first concentration camp in, during World War II. So I grew up with these horrible pictures from the camp that he'd taken and the stories. So that this was very meaningful for me. And when I became a doctor, I could never understand how the German doctors did what they did. Well, in reading that article, I realized, well, they could do what they did for the same reason I could do what I was doing. And that is that we didn't consider them human beings. And if you don't consider a group of people as human, you can justify whatever. You can compartmentalize. And that's exactly what I had done. And that was the first time that I realized that I was a mass murderer. And it was at the same time when Ted Bundy had been arrested. And I thought, oh my gosh, you know, here, this guy's going to be put to death. And I've murdered a lot more people than he ever did. And it took a lot of counseling and a lot of prayer for me to um, be able to get over um, having had an abortion and, and doing abortions. And I think once I had my own, you know, my, my child that I did deliver, um, it, it made me um, really sorrowful about the baby that I had aborted. And, um, and I think often that, that happens once you 
after you've had a baby and you see what it is, then you think back and think, oh my gosh, who would that little person have been? And I, I wonder as a country, you know, we've, you know, we've killed over 60 million in the United States since Roe v. Wade. You know, how many Einsteins and philosophers and, you know, doctors, uh, great artists have we killed and deprived our society of their being and deprived them of ever being able to, to have a life. You know, I, I, there's no other circumstance in which we allow one person to kill another person for their own convenience or to make their life better. I, I can't think of any other circumstance, you know, mm-hmm. except I think we're moving that way with um, assisted suicide. You know, we may be kind of pushing older people um, to commit suicide or, or, you know, begin to think, oh, well, they're so bad off, you know, it'd be better for them if we get rid of them. Well, really, you know, it's better for us sometimes to not have to take care of them. So I think we're seeing it at both ends, the same philosophy. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm glad, glad that you mentioned it that way, because that, that's so often how our conversations go when we're talking to people on street corners and on doorsteps. When else do we kill innocent human beings to solve problems? And even the most challenging, even the most difficult of problems, when is it okay to kill an innocent human being to solve that problem? And praise God that, that he was able to open your eyes and now um, you're, you're working so diligently to defend these um, weak and vulnerable members of the human family to, to educate the public, to educate um, everyone about the reality of what abortion does to a preborn child and um, the humanity of those children. I think it, it's beautiful um, the way the Lord is using you to, um, to share your story and to, to really open people's eyes to the injustice, the, the horror of abortion and helping to turn those people away. Because I, those three stories I, I find so powerful, those three women that you encountered in, in the operating room, the, the one woman who just um, did even think about it. it. It wasn't a matter of, I don't want to do this, but I feel like it's my only option. This was somebody who, yeah, like you said, was kind of flippant about the abortion decision. This was just a, a form of birth control. We've met people on street corners who have had a very, very similar mentality of, um it, it's just simpler this way, or, or for whatever reason, she's decided that that's the easiest thing for them. And, and just being able to share your testimony to <laughs> to um, help people realize that this isn't the, the right way to respond to, to different circumstances, that this is a human being who deserves human rights, just like you and I, regardless of the fact that they're younger and less developed. And, and the last thing that I know that I'm babbling a little bit here, but just so much of what you said is so beautiful. And and so powerful. I mean, at CCBR, we used to do the project called the Genocide Awareness Project, where we tried to open people's eyes with the reality that this, um, the abortion situation in North America is in many ways comparable to those other historic genocides. I know that um, obviously every genocide is different amongst themselves, but when you think of the the dehumanizing and the systematic killing of, of a defined group of people, I think that that's a powerful thought for people to ruminate on that that this is something that is happening with the permission of our politicians it's happening with the permission of the media and of culture and at times with the church 
and I think that it's beautiful to to think about um, how we can start turning the tables on that and how we can continue to provoke people with that that comparison to really shock them out of their acceptance of abortion in society as just something that happens and we don't need to think twice about it. Okay, look at all of the parallels with these historic injustices. I think that's such a powerful um, connection that can really benefit a lot of people in kind of jolting them out of um, the worldview that they're in. Um, Peter, I, I don't know if you had any other questions um, that you wanted to ask before we kind of dive into where we're going from here and and what's happening with the, the Charlotte Loger um, Institute. Yeah, no, I, I would love to ask that. So, uh, Dr. Altman, you um, you recognized, you know, you you turned from being pro-abortion to recognizing the the murder of these young children. But there's a, a difference between becoming pro-life or becoming anti-abortion and speaking out against it. And you've spoken out against abortion, um, you know, in, in court hearings and congressional sessions in different places. Could you share with us your journey to being a, a, a public advocate against abortion, a, a public uh, witness and, and testament to what abortion really is? I have to tell you, it was the... It was my worst nightmare. It was the thing that I absolutely did not want to do. Uh, the last thing I wanted to do was think about abortion at all. Um, but I think after healing emotionally, um, God just started working on me. And and I finally said, okay, um, you know, I'm, I'm open to doing what you want me to do. And I got an email right after that, um, after I was willing, I got an email asking if, uh, for, well, I got an email asking for people who would be willing to go to Washington and testify on partial birth abortion. It's interesting. Even when I was doing abortions, I thought, oh my gosh, I can't believe they're doing DNXs that's murder. <laughs> you know, that that's, I, I don't understand why they're not being arrested. <laughs> so I, um, I answered the email. It turned out that, um, it didn't work out for me to go, but after that I ended up, uh, testifying in Florida and a whole bunch of other States. And then eventually before Congress and, um, in, um, in court defending, uh, abortion bills, all over the United States. Um, it was always very difficult. And I basically always made God prove to me that he wanted me to do that particular thing. <laughs> um, and actually, the last thing I did, I said, God, I do not want to do this. You're going to have to be really, really clear with me, because I don't want to go. And he did. He, you know, he he gave me scripture after scripture after scripture. And the final straw was, I went to church um, and uh, standing in front of me was a woman with a really, really preemie baby, the same age that they would be doing a partial birth abortion on. And I just started weeping and I couldn't stop. And I said, okay, all right, I got it, I'll go. Um, and then everything sort of died down. I, I will say that I got very discouraged because it seemed like Every time I did something, nothing came of it. You know, everything was overturned. 
and and I got very discouraged and things kind of dried up. They weren't asking me for to go anywhere. And then all of a sudden I saw where it had passed, you know, the, the ban had passed. And so don't give up. <laughs> um, but then I kind of went back to my normal life, um, ended up getting married and went back to my, you know, just doing my practice, which I had never left. And then I ended up in 2014, I had to retire because I became allergic to everything I was using, my mask, gloves, patients, everything, and ended up being in my house for about a year and a half, not being able to go out. And I remember praying, Lord, please let me still do something important because I had initially thought I would be a missionary in Africa after I retired. I'd always wanted to do that. And I thought, you know, can't do that anymore. And um, about a week after I prayed that prayer, I got a call from a woman who'd been trying to reach me and wanted me to go testify before Congress. I think I think it was on Heartbeat Bill. And I went and um, it was after that that I was approached by um, Charlotte Lozier Institute uh, would I be, you know, would I be an associate scholar, which I kept telling them no for about six months and then finally agreed and um, just went gangbusters. I realized when I went to do my taxes, I was flying somewhere every two weeks, <laughs> testifying somewhere. Then when COVID hit, couldn't travel anymore, but God opened up writing opportunities. So I've been doing a lot of writing since then. And video uh, conferencing and podcasts and things like that. So God has um, kept me busy. Um, I did tell him after I prayed that he would allow me to do something important. I told him, and when he showed me, I told him, I said, okay, I am not going to make you prove to me with each offer that I should accept if you don't want me to do something, then you, you tell me you don't want me to do it. Otherwise, I'm going to accept everything that comes along. And that was pretty scary. And yet, the two times that I really felt uncomfortable about doing something, I said yes. But then God worked it so I didn't have to do it. So that really built my faith that I could depend on him to to um to protect me and take care of me and what i would tell people is you don't have to figure it all out before you start if you see a little opportunity move forwards i think god can direct you better if you're moving than if you're staying still and just have faith that god can direct you and that if you start going the wrong way or making a mistake he can get you back on the right path so just start something little just do what's right in front of you mm -hmm. and and yeah amen praise god for for the way that he is using you now i i think often of the quote that i find too many christians hold on to of we're not called to do great things but small things with great love i i often think of we're called to do whatever god asks us to do regardless of great or small sometimes the things he puts in front of us appear small at the time and end up becoming monumental and and sometimes vice versa and i'm just so thankful that you have been able to answer the call and be such a beautiful witness to 
to this um, important, important cause right now of protecting the lives of preborn children. So thank you very, very much for your, your courage and your eloquence, Dr. Altman. I, you know, and I, and I think, um, I mean, I actually like that, that quote, but the thing is, mm-hmm. you never know how big it's going to get. Yeah. I was so impressed when I was at the Rose Dinner that um, there were all of this myriad of ministries. It was almost like a diamond, multiple facets, all made up from, from just small individuals who felt God leading them to just open their home to a pregnant woman, or they all just started doing a little tiny thing, but then God blossomed it. So you should, you just start where you are and, and then God will take you um, where you need to be. I was asked to speak to the, at the Rose, the Rose dinner and the um, March for life in Washington, which totally floored me. I didn't even know what it was. And I really had not had much experience uh, speaking to large groups other than testifying, and I certainly not speaking at a dinner. That year, right before then, um, I got a, a a call from a woman who wanted me to come out and speak at their March for Life in in Utah. So thankfully, I had experience there. <laughs> and then another woman called me and asked if I would speak for Brazil for Life. <laughs> at a dinner. And so I got experience at a dinner. So that was my only experience when I was suddenly asked to, to speak in Washington. So it's crazy what God will do. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. That's definitely right. Now, it, it's very, very clear that you have a lot of interaction with pro-lifers. Now, uh, before we wrap up, I, I would like to ask, did you have interactions with pro-lifers while you were performing abortions or while you were um, in supportive of abortion even? And what was what was the the image that you had about the message that they were bringing? Did you look at their message and say, or our message, and say, yep, that's accurate, but I disagree? Or did you look at that message and say, you know, what, what are they even doing? They're not supporting a woman's right. How did you interact with pro-lifers prior to leaving the 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 field of abortion? I didn't I didn't really directly know any people that were pro-life. And I thought they were all crazy, radical, rabid lunatics. I thought they were the worst people in the world. But I didn't really know any of them. I just saw what was portrayed on television. And I thought they were horrible people. And I was so um, amazed to find out that these people were actually some of the most loving, caring people I have ever met and who care about women probably more so than the, you know, than the other people. Um, I, I really was shocked to find out, find that. And I don't, I don't see the people that are the, the rabid, you know, crazy lunatics, <laughs> but that's what I thought of them. <laughs> I, I have, I have one more question as we wrap up, Dr. Oldman, looking back, if you could go back in time and speak to your 20 year old self, um, who is thinking more and more about be, uh, becoming an abortionist or, or in the situation where you were pregnant and thinking about getting an abortion, looking back on yourself back then, what would you say now, knowing what you know? I, I would try to empower that young woman and say, um, you, can, you can do this. This is not your only choice. You have options. 
And this is a choice you are not going to be able to reverse and something, you know, you're going to have to live with this the rest of your life. And I would be honest that, you know, I would say, do you really want to kill your baby? Do you really want to kill your child? And, um, you know, I would, I would just talk about the fact that, you know, I could, if I, if I really wanted to go to medical school in the fall and uh, didn't want to have a baby right then, why not give that baby the option of life and let that baby be adopted? Um, if, um, and then on the other hand, you know, I would have had, you know, you've, you have support, you could have the baby and then go to medical school later after the baby's in school. Um, which, you know, I met many women like that. And I, I think I would have, um, tried to introduce myself to one of these ladies or that girl back then, I would have tried to introduce her to someone who had done that. It, it's funny, the um, day before yesterday, I sort of felt the Lord speaking to my heart that now that President Biden has been elected and he is going to try and reverse every pro-life thing that President Trump did, who was the most pro-life president we have ever had, um, I thought, you know, what we need to be doing is changing the culture so it doesn't matter what the government does. We need to be putting out programs that um, um, lift up, you know, elevate motherhood, fatherhood. We need we need to quit emasculating our men so they want to be fathers. Um, put stories on television about successes, like you were talking about successes of these young mothers having babies and still being able to pursue their dreams. That's why we all became so convinced that abortion was so important was because that's what we saw in the media all the time, all the movies, you know, looking back at old movies, I'm amazed at how many times here's this poor woman, she gets pregnant, she gets a back alley abortion, she dies, or, you know, that was just always the sob stories about these young women. So we need to change our media and our churches need to talk about abortion because it's the young Christian girls who are actually more likely to get an abortion because they don't want their families and their friends to find out because they're Christian. Um, they need to know that they will still be accepted no matter what and embraced and helped and that they have this whole group of people who will be willing to help them. So our churches need to be places that um, someone could run to, not run away from. And we need to we need to um, have programs that can help young mothers if they want to keep their babies, help them with the things that they need. Actually, one of the neatest things I I heard when I was testifying one time, there was a church that um, developed a program where they would. Um, their members volunteered to take children temporarily from people who were, um, say a mother was a drug addict and she needed to go into therapy for a while. She could go to this church. They would um, give her a number of 
of families that might be available to take her child. She could pick the family. The family could decide if they wanted the child, and they tried to pick a family in the same school district, and that family would temporarily take care of that mother's children until she could come back. Or maybe she just had a health issue. Maybe she was just overwhelmed. Rather than those children being put into permanent foster care where it's really hard to get them back, they could stay with the church family. They could see their kids whenever they wanted to. And and then when they were ready, they could have their children back. And I thought, what a glorious program. You know, and, and that's the kind of thing I think churches need to be doing and um, be resources so that, um, as Jeannie Mancini from um, – March for Life says, we make abortion unthinkable. We don't have to legislate it because it's unthinkable. You know, we, we wouldn't do it. And that's where we need to move, I think. Yeah, I completely agree. We need to make abortion unthinkable. We need to reach the culture with the truth about abortion so that the politicians feel pressure from the pro-life side, feel pressure from the side that's against abortion, and in turn, follow their lead. Dr. Aldman, thank you so much for taking the time and joining us. It was a great pleasure. It was a difficult conversation um, that uh, that you shared, a difficult, you know, the reality of what abortion is. But we thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. You're welcome. It, it's been a real pleasure. And I'm, I'm just excited about what you guys are doing. Just a little bit I've heard uh, today. And I just um, pray that God blesses this ministry. Wonderful. Thank you very much. All right, everyone, that was Dr. Kathy Altman, former abortion provider, but now is working full-time. Well, maybe not full-time, but but certainly uh, traveling all over the place, meeting with people, um, testifying to the reality of abortion wherever she gets the opportunity. And so we are so thankful for her witness um, in the movement, her witness sharing the, the real truth about what abortion is. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. If you want to hear more content like this, check us out on your podcast catcher or on our, our website, prolifeguys.com. If you want to, to financially partner with us as we bring more content to you, as we work on more projects that we have, as we, as we, equip people to have good life-changing and effective and winsome conversations on abortion do financially partner with us you can do that at patreon.com slash pro-life guys you can become a patron and get some pretty cool merch if i do say so myself some of it is exclusive to patreon uh, so go check us out patreon.com slash pro-life guys yeah, one quick pump on that as well. I'm going to give a special shout out even to our $5 a month um, gig. I know a lot of people who are listening are college and university students. we got high school students. we got people who are early in their career. We super appreciate you guys tuning in. If where you're at in life, $5 a month is is where you're at in, in your ability to financially partner. This is going to allow us to continue having on guests like Dr. Kathy Altman, like um, putting out more and more video content as well. Maddie, our incredible producer who is editing all of the stuff behind the scenes, um, yeah, recently had to update his computer to be able to crush through all the video content that we're putting out now. And that's only going to increase. And so um, that's what the money is going towards. And even at $5 a month, you get a pretty sweet um, 
laptop or bumper sticker, Pro-Life Guys bumper sticker, you also get into our annual um, kind of open house meeting where Peter and I share about um, how things are going for the Pro-Life Guys. You can ask your questions and you get some bonus content as well. We mentioned a few weeks ago, we've got an episode coming out soon. Um in which me and Peter and Jonathan, I'm sure I should have said Jonathan, Peter and I, um, talk about our favorite books and whatnot. There's other content stories from within the the pro-life movement that are our um, Patreon exclusives. We've got some rants and rambles that we're going to be publishing on there as well. Um, if you want to get exclusive content of this show and what's going on inside my head and inside Peter's head, um, please do check that out. And if you want to be part of our annual kind of open house meeting um, each year and get a pretty sweet bumper sticker, $5 a month will really help us to grow as a podcast, getting on even cooler guests um, and continue pumping out sweet video content. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in. Go follow us on the social media, wherever you do your social media. And we hope you tune in again next week. Take care, everyone. (laughs) 